The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week we are continuing in our series called Our Story Begins, and, and as we've said every week, uh, this, in this series we're going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and the Bible is, is God's story, the Bible is about God, but he graciously uh, brought us into that story by creating us and loving us and sustaining us. Um, so as we look at the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we are looking at how it is that God relates to us and how it is we should relate to God. And, and really, that's, that's what the whole Bible is about. The Bible is for us to know God, to know about God, to know how God relates to us and how we relate to him. So uh, this week, um, we're going to be in the last half of Genesis chapter 7, uh, still dealing with the story of Noah. And, and before we turn there, uh, let me give a quick recap of kind of where we're at in the story of Noah. So Genesis 6, uh, we're introduced to Noah. Uh, a terrible scene is, is painted for us as, as what the current culture in Noah's day looks like. There's, there's wickedness all around, and, and humankind was, was very corrupt, and, and the whole um, culture was filled with violence, so much so that, that the Bible says that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So, so God says, I'm going to blot out everything except Noah, who the Bible says found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, going along in, in Genesis 6, uh, God tells Noah he's going to send a flood and that Noah should build an ark. So God says he is going to establish his covenant with Noah and that him and his sons and his wife and his wife's uh, and his son's wives should enter the ark. So, so God tells Noah all that he should do. He tells him how to build the ark. He tells him to, to gather food. He tells him to gather the animals or that God sent the animals to him so he should gather them in that sense, uh, and etc. cetera. Um, then we move on to chapter 7, where the Lord tells Noah uh, to enter the ark along with his household. God tells Noah that in seven days, rain is coming so after seven days, the water started to come. Heavy rain uh, started to fall, and the fountains of the great deep burst open, as the Bible says it. So that's kind of where we're at uh, as we dig in here to the second half of, of Genesis 7. So uh, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 7, verse 13. Genesis 7, 13, and we'll read... Uh, 13 to 24, so the whole last half of Genesis 7. All right, Genesis 7, verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. 
Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out everything that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. George Washington was, was the commander-in-chief of the colonial forces during the, the Revolutionary War. A mother um, managed somehow to reach him, begging that he spare her son, who was facing severe punishment, even most likely death, because he fell asleep serving as a sentinel. So, so Washington looked to her reassuringly and told her, I will see to it that he gets justice. To which the mother replied, I am not begging for justice, but for mercy. Mercy is, is categorically different from justice. The difference between these two uh, qualities can be seen in this the simple, uh, silly little story that I just told. Yet God is perfectly just and merciful. Andrew preached last week um, on the justice and judgment of God through the flood, and this week I'm going to focus more on God's mercy. Have you ever wondered um, why God would choose to save you? Why does he choose to give us mercy instead of punishing us with death? Noah probably felt the same way. When we read Genesis 7, it's hard not to focus on the death and destruction coming and occurring at the uh, world during the flood, as it's being flooded. It's, it's easy to overlook God's mercy. John Calvin comments that water threatens with death from above and from beneath, except so far as it is restrained by the hand of God. The rain and the seas illustrate the Lord's power to judge and to save, judgment and mercy. So Noah's family was, was safe on an ark he had obediently built while the world and everything he had known disappeared. Noah could probably uh, not understand why God chose to rescue his family. Can you imagine how overwhelming and how humbling to experience God's mercy in that way? Noah was blameless, but, but he wasn't sinless. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Noah was a sinner who deserved death like anyone else. But he was declared righteous and blameless before God because of his faith. Noah believed God by faith and built the ark. And Noah and his family entered the ark believing God by faith that the flood was coming Noah showed his faith in God, in God's word, and in God's promises. So, so mercy towards Noah, why? It's, it's similar to what Luke shows 
uh, in chapter 18, Jesus is, is telling the parable, uh, telling a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector going into the temple to pray. The Pharisee prays about, about how good he is and, and how grateful he is that he isn't like the swindlers and the tax collectors and that he's not like the unjust. The tax collector prays very much uh, different than the Pharisee. Jesus says the tax collector was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Then Jesus says, the tax collector is the one who will be justified. You see, Noah believed God by faith and recognized his need of God's help and recognized his need of God's mercy. God didn't have to save Noah and his family. God chose to. God made the world in in one week. He could have just started over. He could have just said, I don't need any of this. But he didn't. God saved Noah. God's mercy has rescuing power for people in trouble, even people like us. Mercy is is different from grace. Grace is, is giving what we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. When Noah's family could have, um, could have been wiped out in the flood with the rest of the world, God extended his mercy. Mercy is, is the reaction that motivates compassionate action. It extends forgiveness to the guilty, and it offers assistance to the needy, whether it's deserved or undeserved. Mercy is love reaching out to meet a need without considering the merit of the person who receives the aid. That's what mercy is. Mercy, is, as defined in a, in a legal sense, involves such acts as pardon, forgiveness, or the mitigation of penalties. In the Old Testament, mercy is a central theme. Uh, the very existence excuse me, of the covenant between God and Israel was an example of mercy. Uh, God granted to Israel freely without prior obligation on his part. He had no obligation to be merciful to Israel, to call them his own, to call them his people, but he did. When God declared his name to Moses, he, he, de- he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In another place in, in the Bible, David says in the Psalms, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is is merciful, and he's merciful in that he is slow to anger. God, he never destroys without first threatening or warning. Isn't that what we see all throughout the Bible? God will not cut off a man who is completely wicked without warning him with prophets. God warns the sinners before he condemns them. He will send his prophets. He will not destroy the city without warning. He didn't destroy Sodom without the warnings and pleadings of Lot. He didn't destroy Nineveh until he had sent Jonah. God did not throw the world, uh, God did not drown the world until Noah and his family had warned the people of the coming flood. God will not let a man die without giving many warnings by 
by sickness or by uh, preaching or by consequences or, or so much more. God warns. God, God does not condemn at once, but he warns first. Spurgeon says this, uh, the officer of divine justice carries his axe bound up in a bundle of rods, for he will not cut off men until he has reproved them that they may repent. God is merciful and slow to anger. Not only is, is God slow to anger, but he is also slow to warn and even threaten. God didn't send Jonah until Nineveh was full of sin. He didn't threaten to burn Sodom until it had become completely vile. He didn't threaten to drown the world until every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. God is also often slow to sentence the guilty. Even when God says he will punish them unless they repent, he leaves long space for them to turn to himself. Isn't that the case with Israel? Read, read Nehemiah chapter 9 sometime. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a section. It's, it's, it's good. It's convicting, and it's amazing, and you can really see the mercy of God in it. But, but here's just a section about Israel and God's mercy towards them. So Nehemiah chapter 9, this is verses 29 to 31. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But... In your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And, and this, this exact kind of thing is, is the same exact case with the flood as well. God threatened and warned the earth with the flood, but, but he did not execute until he had given space for repentance. Noah, for about 120 years, preached and warned the people. Noah, Noah built the ark, which in and of itself had to be a perpetual sermon. This, this giant ark that he was building, looming over everyone, waiting for the floodwaters to come and, and set it afloat, being every day a warning to the ungodly. Why didn't God at once just, just sweep the world away with a flood? He could have. But, but you can hear the echoes of, of 2 Peter that says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why is, why is God slow to anger? Why is he lasting in mercy? God is, is slow to anger and lasting in mercy because he is great. Little things are always quick to anger, are they not? And, and However, great things are slow to anger. Isn't that the case even with, in thinking of this, I thought of a stupid example. So is, isn't that the case even with dogs, right? Aren't the little dogs usually the most like yippy and loud and most agitated and they think they're the toughest? 
The smallest ones are, are usually the loudest and the most feisty, but, but even a bigger animal, animal like a, a lion, they, were, they will bear a whole lot more until they lift up in its might. God is, is great in power, and he has great power over himself. God perfectly controls his own temper. When God's power restrains himself, then it's power indeed. God is not quick to destroy in anger, but he arises to appease his perfect justice when at last there is nothing else to be done. If God were not great in power, think about it. He would, he would as, as humans continually curse him and disobey him and disregard him, wouldn't he most likely rise up, unleash the whole of his thunder and empty the magazines of heaven and utterly destroy all? Why wouldn't he? But God is merciful and slow to anger. I, I do want to warn you, though, although God is, is abounding in mercy and slow to anger, he is sure in it. Never once has, has God pardoned an unpunished sin. God is perfectly merciful, but he is also perfectly just. God is perfectly just because he is perfectly good. Goodness demands that sinners be punished. Isn't this the case with an example of, of a judge? Wouldn't he uh, condemn a murderer because of his love for others? Wouldn't the judge say something like, I can't let you go free and I must not because you would go on killing others? It isn't out of wrath that the judge would condemn the murderer, but out of love towards others that sin should be restrained. Spurgeon, in, in explaining uh, God's mercy and justice, tells, tells a story or a parable, whatever you want to call it. But he, he says this, Mercy with her weeping eyes, for she has wept for sinners. When she finds they will not repent, looks more terribly stern in her loveliness than justice in all his majesty. She drops the white flag from her hand and says, No. I called and they refused. I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. Let them die. And that terrible word from the lip of mercy self is harsher thunder than the very damnation of justice. That's Spurgeon telling a parable between mercy and justice. Yes, the, the goodness of God demands that humans should perish if they will sin. So, where does that leave us? Is there hope for us now? We don't deserve mercy, and God demands justice. So, what do we do? Peter, in his, in his first letter, mentions the connection between Noah and baptism. Peter says this, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, we're saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now also saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happened to Noah and his family in the flood points forward to what happens to believers when they are saved and baptized. The water of the flood, like, like the water of baptism, points towards and reminds us of our need 
for cleansing, of our need to, to leave the old world behind, to leave our old lives behind, just like the flood signifies uh, the death of the old world and the birth of the new, so baptism signifies the death of the old man and the birth of the new. And, and how do we do that? How do we become a new creation? How, how do we become a new man? How do we accept the mercy of God and yet his justice be satisfied for our sin? There is only one means of salvation. In Noah's case, it was the ark. And in our case, it is the person of Christ. In our despair, in our hopelessness, can we not stand and point and remind ourselves and tell others, look, he has provided a way. Look, Christ, the ark of our salvation. Every living thing in Noah's day was, was together involved in one common doom, except those who were in the ark. The most cunning of animals were all drowned, despite their own power and strength, except those who were sheltered in the ark. The strongest flying birds all grew tired and weary and eventually fell into the water, except those who were in the ark. There was only one way of salvation for all of humanity. There is only one name in whom all can be saved. No matter how rich or poor, how intelligent or simple, how strong or weak, all must be saved the same way. We must be saved through Jesus Christ and him crucified. There, there, there weren't two arks, but there was one. And there aren't two saviors, there's one. There was no other way of salvation except the ark. So there is no other plan of deliverance except by Jesus Christ. Yes, Friends, whatever status you have here on earth, it won't matter. Your works won't save you. In the end, you will be drowned beyond the hope of salvation unless you call upon the name that is able to save, and that name is Jesus. Do you, do you think the plan of salvation is, is hard or that it's, that it's too humbling? It isn't, I promise. Believing by faith in Jesus and his finished work, that's how you're saved. Enter into the ark and take refuge in Christ. There is only one Jesus who saves from sin, but there is no other name and no other means of salvation. The ark stood alone, and so does Jesus. The ark was a giant ark, and it held all kinds of animals, and Jesus is a great refuge for all kinds of rebels. There is room for you in Christ. Come, believe, and repent. The ark was a place of safety, and so Jesus is a great refuge. The ark did not break or, or weary in the storm. No one was thrown from the ark during the storm. In Jesus, there is great safety. The gospel has no flaw in it. Jesus has, has never failed, and he never will. If you are in Christ, you are sheltered from the storm, and who can pluck you from the hands of God? If you trust in Jesus, there is no fear of sinking. There was only one door in the ark as well. Likewise, there is only one way into salvation through Christ, and that is by grace through faith. No one can find hope of salvation any other way, and Jesus himself even says, I am the door. Yeah. And, and isn't it interesting, I didn't put this in my notes, but it's interesting if, if you look, I don't remember what, what verse, but, but it, the verse ends, so 
Noah and his family entered the ark, they didn't shut the door. God shut the door. God is the one who, who controls the opening and closing because only God can securely make you safe. So, so how, how, how can we be saved? You might still be asking somehow. Uh, well, my question to you is, have you believed? It is through believing by faith in the finished work of Christ. Faith is a gift that's freely given by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says this, it says, Everyone who asks receives, and the one who knocks finds, and the one who, oh, sorry, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Can you, by humble faith, look to Jesus and say, my substitute, my refuge, my ark, my shield, my rock, in you I confide? This is, is, is the main theme of this sermon, what I'm about to say, so, so pay attention. It's this, the gospel's reassuring message is that by faith in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, mercy will trump justice without causing injustice. God is merciful and yet some of us, like those in Noah's day, resist and, and run from the mercy of God. Some of us refuse the ark. Some of us refuse Jesus. There are some who say that it's, that it's pointless to turn to Jesus because they are too bad. They have sinned too much and they are too far gone. I'm, I'm begging you, please don't believe this. No one is so bad that Jesus can't save you. He came to save the, the lost, the broken, the hurting. He came to save rebels. The blood of Jesus can wash away the worst and the blackest of sins and make you, my friend, white as snow. No one is unsavable unless you are determined to be. There are some of you who, who would even say that they are in need of a savior because they are good on their own. They might say that they are generally a good person and that's enough. Well, I'm here to tell you that no one is good enough on their own to earn salvation. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Titus 3, 4-5 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, listen, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Good works don't contribute to our salvation. Good works are not the cause of salvation. They are, however, the evidence of it. We cannot be so good that we will be saved. Perfection is required, and, and no one is perfect except Jesus in whom we must believe and be saved. And still there, there are some who refuse Jesus, maybe not openly, maybe they somehow still hold back a piece of themselves and refuse Jesus because they love their idols too much to let them go. They trust in their idols, they trust in their possessions, their status, their relationships, to save them, to, to comfort them, to make them feel happy. Friends, 
Jesus is more satisfying than anything else that this world has to offer. I can promise you that. God will not share his throne with anything or anyone else. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus must be at the center of our lives. Jesus, he can't be just an attachment that we add on to our lives. He must be at the center. We were made for God to be in relationship with him and to be loved by him. Only in in turning to Jesus can we be reconciled back to God, our perfect heavenly father. And this is where unshakable joy is found and this is where true purpose is found. I say it every week at the end of service. Don't believe the lies of of temporary fleeting idols that will leave you wanting and lost in the end. I'll say that again. Don't believe the lies of temporary fleeting idols that will leave you wanting and lost in the end. Only Jesus can save and only Jesus can truly satisfy. If you have not come to faith in in Christ, I, I would beg you, don't procrastinate. Don't wait and in seeing that God is merciful and slow to anger, don't then in turn be slow to repentance. Jesus, speaking of the final judgment in Matthew, says it will be like the days of Noah. And what's that mean? He says this, For as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For, at, for in, as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying And giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then it goes on and it says, Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Don't put off surrendering to Jesus, to believing and trusting in his perfect gospel, and his finished work. So, we know God is merciful. He's merciful. He's abounding in mercy towards us. He's slow to anger. So what does that mean for us who have believed and put faith in the finished work of Christ? For us, that means we respond to others. We respond to the world around us with mercy. From the gospel, we can then gather that, that as Christians who are undoubtedly the recipients of mercy, we are to exercise mercy and compassion towards others. As we, as we look around the world and, and we see all the war, war and hate and despair, we must realize that, that mercy remains a great need. If instead of revenge, nations exercised compassionate forgiveness, if relationships and and marriages and family were governed by loving kindness and tenderheartedness, suffering would be greatly minimized, wouldn't it? Mercy grants undeserved acceptance and helpfulness even in life's unjust circumstances. In situations where where punishment might rightly be expected, mercy is the exercise of peacemaking pardon and forgiveness. Uh, Any any time I think of mercy or someone is is talking about mercy or I'm reminded of forgiveness, um, I'm always reminded in myself of of a story. 
that happened. Um, it's, it's a terrible story, but it's a, it's a story that should uh, stir us. Um, in Pennsylvania, in, in 2006, a, a gunman went into an Amish schoolhouse and he took a bunch of school children hostage. During the whole crisis, he shot and he killed five girls, ages 17 to 13. And then he killed himself. During, uh, within hours uh, of, of the shooting, the Amish community had come around both the parents of the shooter and the wife and three children of the shooter who lived in the same general area. So they came around them and they came to them to express sympathy. And they, they said, they told them that they wanted to be there for them in the hard days ahead. When the, when the shooter, shooter's uh, funeral occurred, more than half of the people there, yeah, you guessed it, half, more than half the people there, they were Amish. An Amish spokesperson spoke out and, and said, they said this, all the family members who lost children forgave the shooter and his family. And of course, the media was shocked at how the Amish were able to, to reconcile and reach out and forgive and extend grace and mercy. Tim Keller says, forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation and that forgiveness is an act of self-sacrifice for the good of others, the good of the community. He says, you see, mercy and forgiveness says, I could pay back, but I'm not going to. Isn't that the case with God, with Jesus towards us? Sin, sin equals death, and yet God, Jesus, said, I will not pay back, but I will send my own son to pay the price. Isn't this, uh, in the Bible even, isn't this what Jesus was talking about um, when, when he was uh, giving the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We will be shown mercy if we extend mercy. Receiving mercy comes to us by our being merciful. This is the, the same premise as, as when Jesus says, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. These are harsh words, and, and I don't know about you, but I am in great need of mercy and forgiveness. We receive mercy at the judgment if trusting Christ's mercy has made us merciful. James, in the Bible, puts it this way, judgment by God is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Let me, let me read that again. That's, whoo, that's heavy. Judgment by God is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But then James goes on and he says, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he means by that is, that is, if we show mercy, our judgment will not be condemnation, but it will be mercy. If, if the forgiveness that we've received at the cost of, of the blood of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on, on holding on to and, and unforgiving grudges and bitterness and not extending mercy, maybe, maybe we should consider 
the possibility that we don't truly trust in Christ, that we don't truly know Christ. Maybe we haven't ever felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid the life of his son for us. God's mercy can be measured only by his amazing love shown on the cross. And and God, in that, has set the bar very high. And so don't misunderstand what I'm saying either. I'm, I'm not saying our good deeds save us. As I've already said, our good deeds don't save us. We're not saved because we, we forgive and show mercy. Forgiving and, and showing mercy is a result of us being saved and, and being in awe of how much we have been forgiven and how much mercy we have been shown. You see, forgiving and mercy, that's the fruit of those who have been regenerated. We also, we also won't walk this out perfectly. As long as we are in the flesh, we will forgive and extend mercy imperfectly. But we must try, and we must ask God to help us by his Holy Spirit. We as, as followers of Christ know from, from personal experience that no person, however good, has no right to God's mercy and favor. None of us deserves mercy. It's always a grace freely given. Mercy is a grace freely given. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Those of us who have, who have come to faith in Christ should thank God daily for his saving mercy so freely poured out for, for so freely poured out on us and then in turn we should freely extend mercy to those around us because god is compassionately good when we find ourselves in in a season of need we can cry out to god for mercy god is not only merciful to us through the person and work of jesus christ god is merciful to us even now when we're in times of need, we can call out to God for mercy. God alone is, is able to meet our most desperate needs. When we, when we fail and when we sin, we should actively seek God's mercy. We must actively seek God's mercy. Hebrews says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, God delights to grant mercy to those who ask. God, he, he calls us to be merciful. In, in Micah, it says, He has shown all of you people what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. You see, as, as recipients of of God's saving mercy. God calls us to be conduits of mercy, letting go of, of vengeful thoughts and instead exercising loving kindness. And I'll, I'll end with this. And this is just a reminder of, of what I've already said. God is merciful and slow to anger. 
God is just. The gospel's reassuring message is that by faith in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, mercy will trump justice without causing injustice. Let's pray. Dear God, we are in awe of your mercy and of your grace. We are in awe of your forgiveness, God. God, help us to, to not forget how merciful you were towards Noah, towards Noah and his household. God, help us uh, to not forget how merciful you are all throughout the Bible. God, and help us to not forget how incredibly rich in mercy you are towards us through Jesus and him crucified. God, help us to go and, and boldly proclaim that there is only one way to be saved and it is through the finished work of Christ. Help us to proclaim to all that there is, there is room for them in Christ and, and that Christ is a refuge of safety and in him there is no fear of sinking. God, help us to be merciful as you have been so merciful to us. God, none of us, none of us deserves mercy, and yet you, God, freely give it. God, make us more like you. God, we long to be more like you. Help us to forgive. God, help us to abound in mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.